Well, this morning as we uh, consider God's Word, I just want to say again, as I often say when I have the opportunity to stand before you, what a, a pleasure it is to preach. And I, um, I find great pleasure in studying and in considering God's Word in uh, this past month. You may have, uh, if you had seen me, you may have seen me up in my bedroom, curled up with a commentary of Micah and thought that that was strange. But I enjoy the study, and I enjoy reading, and I love sitting at the kitchen table with God's Word and considering and thinking about it. It's hard to actually write the sermon, though, I've found. And uh, so if you had seen me at some time yesterday, you may have seen me frantically typing and and editing and thinking uh, more compressed. So I know where certain uh, male members of my family get that from. And uh, so we we, uh, we do enjoy, I do enjoy studying your, uh, God's word and and bringing it before you. And uh, recently I have also been enjoying times of reading the classics. I've kind of dusted off uh, the Grapes of Wrath, and, and I've read Les Mis, and I'm, I'm working my way through another classic now. And I, So I've been kind of thinking along these great storylines and, and considering these, these great works of fiction and how they're woven together with great characters and settings and descriptions and, and plot. Uh, and as I was preparing for Micah and considering the passage today, I, I began to reflect on just the, the great and amazing story that we see in the Gospels. Uh, if you'll turn to Luke, we're just going to thumb through. I want to present to you just a quick sketch. You remember these, and, and, and I just want to kind of get our mind working along this uh, narrative route. The narrative unfolds, and, and Luke gives us these fantastic sketches. And just very briefly, look at these quickly. Uh, we meet the parents of the future John the Baptist, Zechariah and Elizabeth. He, a faithful priest, performing his duties in the temple. She, a faithful woman, though childless and and advanced in years, as he says. We meet Mary of Nazareth, a virgin betrothed to Joseph of the house of David. She is greeted by the angel Gabriel and told she will be overshadowed by the Most High and will conceive a son, the Son of God. And then Luke takes us to the hillside, this great meeting between Mary and Elizabeth. And they rejoice together at what God is doing in Israel and what God is doing in their lives. And then we have Joseph and Mary's intrepid journey from Nazareth, from Galilee all the way to Bethlehem of Judea, evidently late in Mary's pregnancy. And, and Luke tells us of Caesar Augustus' registration, the crowding of Bethlehem, the birth of Jesus, the manger, because there was no place for them in the, the inn. And, and then, of course, time doesn't permit for me to tell you of the other great character sketches that Luke gives us. We've got Simeon of Jerusalem, who was righteous and devout. We've got the prophetess Anna, who never departed from the temple. She was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Luke and Matthew give us these brief sketches of these various people, and just a few simple profound words. He shows us how these people's lives, how the story of their life was, is part of this great story. It's preserved for us in God's word, how, how these, their stories are woven together and what God is doing in Israel and for the world. We see and we get to see how these people move and act in faith. They are choosing to believe God and he inserts them into this great story. And that's really the same hope that I want to present to you today. It's it's this hope that no matter where we are in life now, no matter where life has brought us to today, God's mercies are new every morning. We may be like faithful Simeon or Anna, or we may be uh, perhaps like one of the, the shepherds, although we're not told of their faith, but I, I can just imagine their 
shepherding their sheep uh, on the hillside, and a multitude of angels appears to them, and they make that descent down into Bethlehem. They leave their sheep to see what the angels have proclaimed. And they, they come, and uh, they hear, and they see, and they proclaim what God has done. And they leave glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen and heard. And, and so perhaps there were some that were not believing. They were just going about their daily lives, tending their sheep, doing their job, and God met them, proclaiming his word to them and his promises, and he brings the good news to them. And suddenly, through the proclamation of the word, these shepherds believed and put their trust in God. They're moved to worship. Their story, the, the purpose and direction of their lives forever changed. And so perhaps this Christmas, even this day, God will move amongst us in a similar way. So I've kind of described to you some of the characters and given you a little sketch and seeing how God's weaving these stories together. I, I skipped one. I, I skipped perhaps a famous one, the one that we'll focus on today, the wise men from the east. And you kind of see this back in Matthew chapter 2. They uh, follow the star. They come to Jerusalem. The whole city is stirred up. Herod, in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, all Jerusalem with him. You know, they were seeking the king of the Jews. Where is he to be born? He gathers the scribes together, and, and they proclaim in verse uh, 5 and 6. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of, Judea, of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So we, we see in response to the wise men and their question, who is he who is born king of the Jews? Or where is he to be born? The answer from these religious scholars is in Bethlehem. With the skill of a farmer consulting his almanac to see the times and the seasons when to plant the crops, these skillful, knowledgeable scholars pluck this verse out of Micah chapter 5, and, and they present the answer. It's a true answer. It's a correct answer. But it's also part of a passage in Micah. It's a, it's a story kind of embedded within the story. We, we see this sort of almanac answer coming out of Matthew chapter 2, Bethlehem. But if you go back to Micah and examine it, which we will to, to do today, we'll see that this is a, a story within a greater story. So that's where we're ultimately headed to. If you can turn to Micah chapter 5, we're going to examine this story within a story. But first, let me read the passage. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then... The rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. So let me just give you a quick sketch of Micah in this book, and then we'll dive in looking at these four verses. Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah, and if you flip back to Micah 1.1, we see his ministry took place in the times of the kings of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Jotham was the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. They ruled in the southern kingdom of Judah, 
And these kings are in the line of David. And you would see that if you flip to Matthew 1, you'd see these kings are in the very line of Joseph, who's the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. We'll remember also at this time period that Israel had already split into two kingdoms. Israel with its capital of Samaria in the north, Judah with its capital of Jerusalem in the south. And these two kingdoms uh, were often, or sometimes, allied with each other, but often at war with each other. These two kingdoms were often, uh, or sometimes allied with the surrounding pagan nations, but often in war with them. We also know that during this time of uh, often prosperity, then came uh, God's judgment and discipline. They had good kings, they had bad kings, they had good priests, they had bad priests, they had good prophets, they had bad prophets. And God was faithful to them, but they were always wandering, their heart was always straying, even as Tracy read from Isaiah today. This is the context in which Micah's ministry, his prophetic ministry is taking place. Now the book itself appears to be a collection of his sayings, It's it's a collection of his oracles arranged and carefully designed together. And many of these oracles pronounce judgment on God's people, the north and the south kingdoms, judgment on the surrounding nations. But they also tell us of God's coming salvation, that he will uh, spare them, he will preserve them, preserve a remnant. So it's an assortment of of judgment, it's an assortment of salvation oracles. And so we're going to be looking at Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Let me finally say that this oracle appears to kind of be part of, a, of a three oracles that are very similar. They follow a pattern. You'd have to go back to chapter 4, verse 9, where it says, Now, why do you cry aloud? And then again in verse 11, Now many nations are assembled against you. And then for chapter 5, verse 1, Now muster your troops. So those are the three oracles that are together, and they follow a very similar pattern of this near-term judgment He's, he's getting ready to tell them something that will happen to them in a judgment near term. And then he speaks about God's uh, preservation of the children. And then he speaks of a future hope. So they all follow this pattern. And we will see that pattern as we work through these first four verses. So my plan in presenting these four, four verses to you this morning is to kind of follow this motif that I've laid out, that our lives are, are part of this story that God is weaving together and that we join that story by faith. So we're going to be kind of thinking about these four verses in four settings. So verse 1 will be Jerusalem. Verse 2 will be Bethlehem. Verse 3 will be Babylon. And verse 4 will be secure pastures. So those are going to be the four points of my outline. We will consider them in order, looking at the setting, looking at the characters, and trying to think about how, how this, these, this oracle, how this prophecy would have impacted our lives had we been in those times and how they should impact us now. So verse 1, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us. So the setting is Jerusalem. This O daughter of troops phrase is, is, is similar to this uh, phrase that you'll find in chapter 4 a lot, daughter of Zion. He's speaking to the city of Jerusalem. And we see that this, this city is under siege, And we know of three instances of sieges. Uh, There's the Assyrian siege that King Hezekiah underwent, so that would have been contemporaneous with Micah. And then there were two sieges that happened later, approximately 150, 160 years later, sieges from Babylonia. 
in the, Bab- the sieges from those, you can find them in 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 10. That was the first siege that resulted in the surrender of the king. Very fascinating story. The king surrenders. He's carted off, and his uncle, it, it, like a puppet king, is kind of put in his place to pay, pay tribute to King Nebuchadnezzar. And then in 2 Kings 25, we see the second siege. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege. Jerusalem took her stand and held out for over a year and a half, two years by some estimates. It was this ongoing siege, this pressing tumult around the city. These sieges, I want you to understand, were horrible affairs. This, this prophecy in verse 1 is, is horrible. It's, it's going to be a lack of, of food, lack of water, constantly living under the daily threat of impending. Are they going to come in today? Is today the day that we will finally give way? What will happen to us then? What will happen to our lives? And our, our, my mind just naturally went to the siege that we hear in the news in Aleppo, Syria, a city lying 450 miles north of Jerusalem. Obviously, it's a different kind of siege, right? We've got a different kind of warfare going on. You've got the, the Syrians aligned with the Russians, and they're bombarding this, the, the, the city, They're kind of engaged in this reckless warfare, civilians caught in the midst. But there there are similarities. We have have the tragedy there, the human suffering that we hear about in the news, the the lack of supplies, the lack of food, the lack of medical care. Every part of your life would stop in a siege. Every normal part would just cease, and you would be stuck in this cycle of waiting, and it's horrible. Hiding, fear, misery. And it was during this siege, the puppet king that had turned rebel, King Zedekiah, was captured. And Nebuchadnezzar purposely blinded him after killing all of his sons in front of him. He wanted that to be the last thing that he saw, and then he blinded him. You read about that in Second Kings as well. And so that's that reference, I think, to with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. So we have here Micah prophesying something that's going to happen 150 years in the future. King after king, each more sinful than the last. Pagan worship. In times of prosperity, greed, and oppression only increased. The true worship of God was all but disappearing. God, in his grace, continued to send these prophets, telling them of what was going to come, and that they needed to repent. They were predicting God's judgment. And if we found ourselves in Judah during that time of the fulfillment of this prophecy... What would we think? I want you to consider what your response would have been if you found yourself reading the scroll of Micah, verse 1, and considering the the judgment that you were sitting under. The enemy that God had sent was surrounding your city. Your king has been captured. He is humiliated, defeated. The long march to Babylon awaits you. What is your response going to be? What do you do with your life at that point? What is your, the rest of your story going to be? I think the, the people of Nineveh, one chapter back in the book of Jonah, one book back in the book of Jonah, give us a great picture of the response. And so I'll just briefly say what they did was they believed God. The scriptures say the people of Nineveh believed God at the preaching of Jonah, the preaching of the coming judgment. They looked past the messenger Jonah and they saw the message of God. They believed God. They called for fast. They respond in sackcloth and ashes. An entire city 
turned to God. A pagan city, Nineveh, turned to God when Jerusalem wouldn't. And when we understand that we've broken the commandments of God, the laws of God, his holy law, when we understand that we're, we fall under God's wrath, when we're convicted by God's spirit and understand that our soul is a besieged city, that honor and exile await us as people personally, then we know it's time to respond when we feel God's conviction. It's time to change the story of our life. When God wakes us up from our spiritual stupor with the weightiness of our folly, we must respond like Nineveh in repentance, forsaking sin that led us to condemnation and judgment and death. We must turn to God. So verse 1 is Jerusalem, the besieged city, the wrath of God, and our response is uh, should be one of turning to God. Verse 2, Bethlehem. Bethlehem in this verse, in this oracle, represents the promise of God, the promises of God. We see from this first part of verse 2 that Bethlehem was small. It was not the most important city. It was a small city, but it was important. It was the birthplace of David, King David. If you would look in 1 Samuel 16, you'd see that 250 years earlier, God had sent Samuel to Jesse the Bethlehemite, because this man's sons, God had chosen the future king. And, and we remember that story, right? He lines up the seven sons in front of Samuel, and he, they parade by him one at a time. He, he looks at the outward appearance, and he thinks, there's God's man. That's the next king, the one to come after Saul. That's the one that God has chosen. And out of all these impressive sons of Jesse, God never chooses one of those seven. And he says, are these all your sons? And Jesse said, no, they're my my youngest, my least significant son, the one that was expendable, the one that didn't need to come to this great feast with the prophet Samuel. He's tending the sheep. We, We will not start. We will not begin until you bring him here. And so he comes, and he's anointed King David, the future king of Israel. From this insignificant town of Bethlehem, the least significant son is selected by God to be the future king. There's something else that we're told about this ruler, we're told his coming forth is from old, from ancient days. That's what Micah says. And the probable meaning of this phrase, I think what he's getting at, is a reference to the fulfillment of the ancient old covenants that God had made with Abraham and with David. These promises that a son of David would sit on the throne. He comes from the city of David to fulfill the ancient covenant that God made with his people. We should also notice in this verse that this ruler is called forth by God for God. Expressly stated in the verse, by God, for God. He comes forth by the power and will of God, by his providence, by his plan. The birth of Jesus in Bethlehem was in the will and plan of God from ancient days. From the small, insignificant town came a small shepherd boy chosen by the will of God, by the hand of Samuel, to ascend to the throne of Israel. And we see that God is also choosing Jesus to come from the town of David, in the line of David, to ascend to that great throne. No matter how small, no matter how large the prior defeat in verse 1, think back, we've just thought about the fall of Jerusalem, 
The former king has been blinded. The people are in exile. The walls broken down. The temple desecrated and destroyed. The city raised to the ground. God's purpose of election, God's divine sovereign choice cannot be thwarted. When you think about verse 1 to verse 2, the transition is just jarring. We, we are off in exile, humiliation, and now God's talking about Bethlehem and this future ruler will come forth. Just like that. It should fill us with awe at the power of God in all things. It made me remember a, a phrase out of Psalm 113. Just nine verses. I'm going to read the whole thing to you. I think this, for me, encapsulated that response when we see God's judgment, but also his promises. How sweet. It says, verse 1, Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above all the heavens. And this was the verse that stuck out to me. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is like the Lord our God? Who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. That's, that's the response when we see God moving in such a majestic way in judgment and in provision. Bethlehem is pictured for us as God's promises. God has never been under any obligation to us, and yet he has made promises to us. He's chosen a people for himself. He's made covenants with them, and the man has always failed to keep up his end of the covenant. God has always been faithful. We see the mercy of God that on the very heels of sending the besieged citizens of Jerusalem into exile, he reminds them of his faithfulness and the promise that he has made to the house of David and to the children of Abraham. 700 years, 700 years passed from the giving of this oracle to its fulfillment in Bethlehem. 600 years from the fall of Jerusalem to the holy advent in Bethlehem. Generation after generation after generation called to believe this promise of God. In each successive generation called to hope in these promises, to build their lives on these promises, to remember that the Lord is high above all the nations. He will call for a ruler for Israel from the town of David, father telling son, son believe. Know for sure that he will do this. If he doesn't do it in my lifetime, perhaps he will do it in yours. Making the promises of God the the unfolding story of God, their story. And my friends, we stand on the other side. We stand on the other side of so many promises in the Bible. And we can look back to Micah chapter 5 and we can go straight to Matthew 2 and see fulfillment. That should strengthen us. That gives us such an advantage to be able to see all these promises of God come true. And because God is a gracious God who has made many promises to his people, we should take great comfort and courage from all his promises and look to the fulfillment of them all. For example, hasn't he said, if we confess our sins, what does he say? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And hasn't he almost pro- also promised his children, 
I will not leave you or forsake you. And hasn't he said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. So whether we live then and we're challenged to keep believing that God would fulfill his promises to bring a ruler from Bethlehem, the city of promise, or we live now and are called to believe, as the Holy Scripture teaches us, things like we recite every month in the Apostles' Creed, how Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, the third day rose again from the dead, ascending to heaven, seated at the right hand of Father, the God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. We are called to believe these great promises of the fulfillment of Scripture. We have Jerusalem, the besieged city. We have Bethlehem, the city of promise. And we have Babylon, verse 3. We'll get into how I'm, why I'm calling this Babylon. But I want you to understand that Babylon is the city from whence we shall come. It's the city of our coming forth. It's the city of our return. Yes, it's the city of exile, and that's made clear. But it's also the city of return. And so that's what we're going to be thinking about today. But why do I say that this is Babylon? Why is this verse talking about that particular setting? It's difficult to see. We were in Jerusalem, which represented God's city under judgment. Then we were in Bethlehem, a city of God's promises. And now verse 3 says that we are in a time and a place of God having given them up. And this is a reference to Israel in exile in Babylon. This is a picture of the remnant of God waiting in exile, waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises. We know they are waiting because of the phrase, until the time. This time is the, the time that God has determined. I'm reminded of, of the question the disciples asked. you remember in Acts chapter 1? The disciples asked, so when they had come together, they asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, what did he say? He said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority until the time. Then we know that it is the remnant in exile that are pictured here because of the allusion to she who is in labor. Did you see that in verse 3? When she who is in labor has given birth. Now, you could think that this is Mary, and it might be a reference to Mary giving birth to the king that was this, the, this ruler that was just talked about in verse 2. It's more likely in my reading and my thoughts that it's referring to Babylon and cap- captivity. If you look back up chapter 4, verse 10, in the first oracle of these three oracles, it talks about this woman in labor, verse 9, who will writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country and shall go to Babylon. Micah has pictured for us the distress of Zion traveling into the captivity of Babylon. And from Babylon, Zion waits for God. Then the last phrase from verse 3 promises the exiles shall return. The rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Verse 3 portrays the the waiting of Captain Israel that mourns in lonely exile and promise of their return to the brothers. Of course, God did in fact 
fulfill this verse. This is an, another instance of prophecy that we can look back on and say, well, God did that. God did return his brothers back to the people of Israel. It's captured for us in, in Ezra and in Nehemiah. We can go in and read these things for ourselves, and we can see that Israel did come back. They came back in successive waves. Ezra 2.1 says, Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar carried to Babylonia. And what is the story? We've been talking about the story motif. I've been trying to get you to think about what is your story and how is it connected to God. What's the story of someone that comes back from captivity? What is that like to be in lonely exile and to return? Well, a quick look at Nehemiah gave me a great answer, a great glimpse of what these very people, these people that Micah is referring to, did when they were able to return to their homeland. When they were once again able to enter and rebuild the ruins of Jerusalem. They dedicated themselves to the diligent rebuilding of the city walls against so much hardship and persecution. Their unity and single-mindedness of purpose was just unparalleled. They submitted themselves to the, to the discipline and the teaching of the rulers. They were given correction and they responded. They gave themselves to the work of rebuilding with generosity. They stood and listened to the law of God, read and proclaimed. They participated in the holy feasts and festivals that God had appointed. They confessed their sins. They renewed their covenant with God. They dedicated the rebuilt city walls with much joy and exuberance. They, they sang, there was music, there was joy, there were sacrifices. God, uh, Micah presents Babylon in verse 3 as the city whence the exile captives are called according to God's plan to return home, and they do, in fact, return. But it's more than a reference to that remnant in Babylon. It's also a reference to those that the Davidic ruler, the one that we are thinking about that's going to be born in the manger, born in, in, the, in Bethlehem, laid in the manger, he's looking forward to Jesus and his calling forth his brothers back. I hear the words of Gabriel to Joseph in Matthew 1. She will bear a son... And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so it is that we understand from the Bible that it's the proclamation of God's story, it's the proclamation of the gospel, the good news, that we become part of Christ. What did Paul say to the Ephesians in his letter? In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So as we consider Babylon, we must examine our own life story. Is Babylon for you a city of exile where you're content to live? You're content to die there. Are we satisfied living apart from God? separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world? Or is Babylon for you a place of returning from whence you will come? Will it be our far country where we squandered our wealth but then came to our senses and thought to ourselves, how many of our, my father's hired servants have more than enough bread but I perish with hunger? 
And what does Micah foreshadow in verse 3? If not a joyous reception of the prodigal son by his loving heavenly father, where we will trade our lonely exile for divine fellowship. We'll trade our filthy garments for robes of righteousness. We'll trade our starvation and insatiable longings for banquets of grace and abundance and provision. That's what's pictured for us in Babylon in verse 3. Finally, verse 4. In many ways, my favorite verse to consider is great description of God's ruler. The setting of verse 4 are it was a little bit more hard to put into words. I didn't have a specific place like Jerusalem or Babylon or Bethlehem to attach it to. But really, it's talking about secure pastures where God uh, causes great security, where they will dwell even to the ends of the earth under his protection. And I think of secure pastures, a city of secure pastures and faithful living. My mind goes to Psalm 23, the Psalm of David, right? The shepherd, he describes it perfectly. He depicts green pastures. He depicts still waters, righteous pathways, comfort derived from the good shepherd's rod and staff through the darkest valleys. He describes a a victory banquet before vanquished foes, the pleasure of the anointing oil and a cup that overflows. And if you look at verse 4 with me, we can notice a couple of things to give us great encouragement. We notice how active the shepherd is. The verse says he stands. He shall stand and shepherd his flock. To me, I took great comfort from that little word. I thought about it often as I was studying. He's, he's there in the pasture. He's standing with his people, with the sheep. He's not aloof. He's not distant. He's not snoozing under a tree. He hasn't forgotten them. He's watching. He's caring. He's standing in the power of the Lord. He's tender and good. Jesus is this shepherd that serves, as the verse says, in the strength of the Lord. During his earthly ministry, he shepherded all those that the Father gave to him, and he lost none of them except the one who was to betray him to fulfill the scriptures. And now the scriptures tell us that he reigns sovereignly at the Father's right hand. He's the head of the church. He's the head of Christ Church Rollsville. He's the head of every true church, Jesus Christ reigning in the strength of the Lord. And he shepherds his sheep in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. We see that also in verse 4. And again, my mind went back to that prayer in John where Jesus is praying to the Father. He's, and when I was thinking about him shepherding in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, what does he say in John chapter 17, verse 4 and 5? I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Truly, the picture presented to us in Micah 5.4 is extraordinary. It's breathtaking. This shepherd who is presented to us is like no king or ruler that had ever come before. David fell Solomon, his son, fell. Every ruler fell. They were all inadequate and sinful. But this shepherd, who shepherds in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord, is wholly different than them. And can you just imagine, generation after generation, them pondering this scripture? Like, who is he going to be? And, and how is he going to be? And how, how could it be? 
We've had so many corrupt kings, and now we're in exile and being, you know, bantied about, and they come and rebuild the city, but it was not like before, and they're waiting to hear a word from the Lord, and they've, they're pondering. They're believing God, the faithful are, but they're, they're wondering, how can this be? It's extraordinary. And by faith, we know that God sent his very son, fully God and fully man. That's how he accomplished it. He was fully man, yet he was fully God to fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law, unlike anyone before him or after him. He came in the likeness of sinful man, but knew no sin. And that is why the sheep in verse 4 are said to dwell in secure pastures. They are sheep of the true and good shepherd the true and good shepherd of Israel, they are beloved, they are children of God. And at the end, if you'll look at the end of verse 4, pictures the reign and rule of Jesus spreading to every corner of the earth. So too his secure pastors spread with him. In every tribe, tongue, and nation, there ought to be and there will be secure pastors for God's people, green pastors and still waters, because his name is great, and his provision is perfect. But some that do not know the power of God and do not know the plan of God will scoff at this. And they will say that the lives of Christians seem to them no more secure and no more peaceful than anyone else. In fact, they may observe that in many places, Christians are persecuted for their faith in this good shepherd who supposedly gives secure pastors, to which we are called to remember the words of our Lord in John 16. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And if you've made your life story part of this grand narrative that God has been unfolding, then we can rest assured These secure pastors are your pastors. Brothers and sisters, take heart this Christmas that in the city of David, the true shepherd king has come forth. He is our peace. He is our consolation. In the strength and majesty of the Lord his God, he will guide us all the days of your life into green fields, quiet waters along paths of righteousness. You will feast at a banquet before vanquished foes, your cup will overflow. Only remain faithful to the end by the power of the Lord. So in summary, this oracle, responsible for guiding the wise men to their destination, is a call to us today to believe the promises of God, to lead us to secure pastors as we follow our shepherd king. From the judgments of Jerusalem to the exile in Babylon, we are called to return to the secure pastors of Jesus the Messiah, born in Bethlehem. And let us recognize that like all, like Israel, we have transgressed the law of God and deserve his judgment. And let us leave fruitless lives lived apart from God and walk with the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, and enjoy the bounty of lives lived for God. Let's pray.